We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use the Pew Bible. You can find Revelation 6 on either page 886 or page 1031, depending on which version of the Pew Bible you're using this morning. Now, I have to be honest, Revelation was a passage or a sermon series in which I was a little reluctant to kind of take, take on and, and tackle, but... When I got to Revelation chapter 6, this was the one chapter where I was really excited for a couple of different reasons. One, it's a challenging chapter, but it's an exciting chapter, and there's a lot here for us to try to unpack. But more importantly, the thing I was most excited about is if you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, then you'll know that this particular passage, Revelation chapter 6 verse 8, features prominently in what I consider to be one of the greatest westerns of all time. If you're not familiar with Tombstone, I'll kind of set the scene. It's the, the story of Wyatt Earp and his brothers. And it's the story of an evil outlaw gang called the Cowboys. And the camera begins with this opening shot of a wedding scene in a Catholic church. And the evil outlaw gang Cowboys, identified by their red sash, they ride up. And as the groom and the bride are exiting the church, they begin to have a shootout. There was some kind of dust up and a couple of the Cowboys were were killed. And the result is that they're now coming to execute vengeance. And so they shoot the groom. And as they're shooting all of these various people, the priest starts kind of screaming at them in Spanish. He's kind of cursing at them using scripture. Now, the dangerous, the most dangerous or deadliest pistolier, Johnny Ringo, he begins to translate. And he tells the group that he's quoting from the book of Revelations, chapter 6, verse 8. Behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death and hell followed him. And this kind of becomes a dominant theme. It kind of represents the justice and the retribution that Wyatt Earp pours out on this evil outlaw gang, the Cowboys. It's a great Western movie. But let me say this. They mess up with the book of Revelation. He says, Johnny Ringo, quoting the book of Revelations. Okay, I've mentioned this before. It's the book of Revelation singular. If you approach this as the idea of the book of Revelations, then there's this thought that there's all these different things that are being revealed. But what's being revealed is one singular thing, the glory of God and his plan of redemption that's executed through Jesus, who we looked at last week, who is the lion from the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb who was slain. He's given honor and blessing and strength and might and riches in all of these things because he was willing to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin. Now, this lamb who was slain, we saw last week, is holding a scroll in his hand. And Revelation chapter 6 is going to pick up and kind of continue the story. So let me invite you to stand as we read Revelation chapter 6. John writes, Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering And to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And one came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. Now when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the, fellow, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, chapter 6 continues this vision that John has kind of in the throne room of heaven. But his eyes are drawn now to the scroll that the Lamb holds in his hand. Jesus is going to open the first of these seven seals that have sealed up the scroll. John says, I saw and behold. And this is kind of a technical expression saying we're moving into a new vision. Now, what's interesting is that in Revelation chapter 6, we don't find out what the contents of the scroll are. We only find out about these seals that are opened. Each seal, as it opened, presents John with kind of a new vision or a new experience. The first four are interconnected. We have four riders on four horses. The sixth is this image of these souls under the altar. And then the, uh, I mean, that's the fifth. And then the sixth is this great cosmic upheaval. Now, what we've said before is as we approach Revelation, we have to be careful. Now, up to this particular point, the first five chapters, there's a lot of unity in theologians and, uh, you know, Bible scholars in terms of what's taking place. It's when you get to Revelation chapter 6 that there starts to be a lot of kind of uh, different uh, ideas, opinions, thoughts on what these writers represent and uh, about the timing of these particular events. And so I'm encouraging you to not approach the book of Revelation as a mystery book. Something that we're going to divine out the secret uh, you know, interpretations of, but it's more of a picture book. A book that shows us the truth of who God is and what he's doing. There is no secret meaning of the text that we have to discover. Now, there are some people who would say that, you know, what John is doing here, what he's going to do in uh, the chapters that follow, is he going to describe things, and then we have to do the heavy interpretive work and identify kind of the correlating realities in contemporary and modern times. He's sort of future-telling is what he's doing. I don't think that's the case. 
I think what John is doing and what he's going to do in this kind of apocalyptic language is he's giving us these cycles of judgments. We have the seals, we have the trumpets, we have the bowls. And they all are uh, numbered in the number of seven, which means that when this is completed, when these cycles of judgment are done, the wrath of God will be completely and utterly poured out. We see these cycles of judgment that take place here in six, uh, chapter 6, uh, uh, chapter 8, and then continuing on throughout the book of Revelation with the seven bowls of judgment in chapter 16. But these are not events that are happening sequentially or chronologically so that you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. But they're like the different camera angles at a sporting event. I don't know how many of you watch sports, but sports are a big deal at our house. We have, uh, I believe, nine weeks from yesterday to the start of college football. And what happens in a college football game is that there'll be a play. And it'll be, you know, a really quick happening play. And there'll be a, a you know, a pass that's thrown to the sideline. And the receiver catches it. And he steps what the referee thinks is inbounds. And he calls it a completed catch. Well, the opposing coach has this opportunity to challenge the particular play. He says, no, I don't think he got his feet inbounds. And so he throws this flag out. And the officials gather up. And they have all of these different camera angles. And so the first camera angle kind of shows it from behind the quarterback, and, and you see that perspective, and you think, oh, well, yeah, he definitely got his foot in bounds. But, but then the, the television broadcast shows you like three other angles from different perspectives in the stadium. And then what you see is, no, he actually stepped on the line, so it was an incomplete pass. That's what John is doing here. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls are all different perspectives of the judgment of God that's being poured out in the last days. Now, the first four seals can be seen as portraying problems like war, famine, things that have been with us throughout the course of human history. And what they're showing us is the self-destructive nature of sin. Sin always tears things apart at the same. It always takes order and produces chaos. These seals could represent kind of the judgment that we pour out on ourselves with the way we live as individuals, as communities, as governments, as societies. They represent the effects, the terrible, destructive effects of sinful human beings. The way we upend what God had intended for peace and for shalom in the beginning. For the flourishing of human beings and for all of creation. Because of sin, we destroy that. But what I want you to notice is that it's easy to get bogged down in the seals and the riders and the horses. But the real focus is the authority of the Lamb to execute the judgment and the plan of God. Nothing happens without the Lamb breaking the seals and issuing His authority for these riders and for these events to take place. So even in God executing judgment, He is glorified. God is, God is glorified in judgment. God is also glorified in grace and mercy. God's plan will bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. So John begins in verse 2. and He says, I hear this voice. The voice says, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, the first rider hears this command to come and he comes out and he rides upon a white horse. And people immediately connect this image here in Revelation chapter 6 with the image of Jesus in his second return coming on a white horse. Jesus wields a sword and he wears many crowns. But while here in Revelation 6, the writer has a bow and a single crown. 
So it's most likely that this writer in Revelation chapter 6 has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus' return to Revelation 19 other than he might possibly be a counterfeit. That's the only kind of loose, tenuous connection that we might be is that he's some kind of false, fake writer. Because we know what the devil does is he tries to imitate, to to counterfeit the things that God does. And that's going to become a theme as we continue in the book of Revelation. If God does something, then the enemy tries to duplicate or replicate or counterfeit that particular thing. So there's probably not a connection in Revelation chapter 6 with the rider on the white horse with Jesus in Revelation 19. But most likely what this is that he's just some rider who Jesus has come and he brings with him. All of this destruction and devastation that's coming upon the earth. Now, in the idea of a white horse, we know what that means. He's the conquering. He's the, king, he's the one who, 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 who does what needs to be done. It's a symbol of conquest. So when he goes forth, he's unleashing all these judgments that are going to follow, and no one can withstand them. So that's the first rider. Then the second seal is broken, and it becomes clear what he means. It's a symbol of war, of slaughter. Of violence, of bloodshed. He rides a red horse, and we're told that this is the rider who's been given the, the, the authority to take peace from the earth. He wields a great sword, and in his wake, people slay one another in verse 4. Now, there's some speculation about the relationship between the first and the second rider, and we don't really know if there is a correlation between the first rider who goes forth and the second who follows him. But what we do know is that after these two riders have been called forth, The idea, the notion, the hope or thought of peace on earth is completely and totally obliterated. Now, we translate in our English translation, if you're using the Pew Bible, you're looking at the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using this morning. And the English word there is translated slay. But that's probably not the best way to translate that English word in verse 4. A better word would have with it... uh, um, you know, butcher, slaughter. I mean, this is, this is just unadulterated violence that's being let forth. And that with what is left when he gets through is just pure carnage, suffering, heartache. And, and it's, just, it's just this idea of complete and total upheaval and destruction. What's interesting is that if you look through the history, course of human history, and I only went back, I think, to the 16th century, and if you look at the level of lives, the number of lives, specific lives that are lost as a result of military conflict, it's increasing exponentially. And some people would argue that the 20th century was the most violent century in the course of human history. As human population has grown, the percentage of people who have been killed in conflict has at least doubled, maybe tripled. We had two great world wars. We had all kinds of communist regimes. We had the Holocaust. We had numerous events in which large, mass, wholesale deaths of human beings. The second writer comes forth and there's all kinds of violence and death left. The third writer, John says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, there was a black horse and the writer had in his hand a pair of scales And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for Daenerys, three quarts of barley for Daenerys, but do not harm the oil and wine. 
Now, in this particular time, a quart of wheat was about the average uh, day supply for a soldier to eat and to feed upon. And the average cost of this particular amount of wheat was about one-eighth of a denarius. So he could buy for one-eighth of a denarius kind of a whole day's supply of food. But after this black horse goes forth, the price of grain has now uh, gone up 800%. Barley was, uh, you know, kind of what I would consider like the spam of the day. You know, like you don't really want it, but if you don't have a lot of money and you need to fill yourself up, then you buy spam and you eat it and you just kind of figure out, like when I was growing up, we'd figure out all kinds of different ways to make spam into palatable recipes. And, you know, but nobody was ever excited, oh, we're going to have spam again tonight. But barley was kind of the thing that you ate when you were just simply trying to survive. It did not have the value of wheat, and three quarts of barley's four days wage was an absolutely outlandish price. But what's interesting is that there's this command given that the supplies of oil and wine are not to be harmed. Now, there's this incredible inflation in which, you know, food is scarce and so prices rise, but there's this command that the supplies of oil and wine should not be affected. So this rider who symbolizes famine and all of the economic turmoil that result of that, all the hardship, the suffering of God's people, the judgment that's being poured out upon the earth, it's not complete. It's not total. Things are not as bad as they could possibly be. Why? Because God is gracious. God is long-suffering and patient, slow to anger, we're told. God's judgments are restrained in some sense in this particular rider. He limits the scope of them. He protects the oil and the wine. We call this, in theological terms, common grace. It's the fact that God shows grace to every single human being. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Things could be much worse if God simply unleashed all of his wrath and judgment, but he restrains his anger. And these cycles of wrath no, do not reach their ultimate climax. Now we see the fourth and the final rider in verses 7 and 8. John sees the lamb open the fourth seal. And this is what Johnny Ringo was quoting in Tombstone. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, he heard the voice, the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And the rider of the pale horse is named Death, and Hades closely follows him when he goes forth. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, we started this sermon series several, several weeks, maybe even a couple of months ago. It's Jesus who holds in his hand the keys to death and to Hades. It's his power to unleash this judgment upon the earth. But it's also in his power and authority to set his people free from death and from the, gay, the grave and all of its consequences. But in this particular situation, he gives this rider on the pale horse, which really, literally translated means like a green horse. Like, like imagine, like if you've ever seen a zombie movie, the color, kind of that faded out color that zombies have. Like that's the idea is that this is this is death embodied in this horse and in this rider. But he possesses this power to bring about death, to cause the beast of the earth to rebel. And where the four horsemen goes, all of these judgments and calamities seem to increase in intensity. So these first four seals are connected. The fifth seal is kind of a, a departure. 
In which the fifth seal, we see a change in setting. We move from the earth and all the suffering that's been brought forth by these four riders to heaven. And there's an altar that's mentioned here. Now, an altar has not appeared in the book of Revelation up to this point. And under this altar are the souls of people who have died, John says, for their faith in God and for the witness that they've borne him. He calls them those slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And the idea is that these are martyrs. These are men and women who out throughout the course of history for their faith, their commitment to Jesus, have lost their life. And they're now these souls in heaven under the altar who are crying out for justice. Notice what their cry, their pleading is. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that last phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is just kind of a way to describe everybody who's living in the course of human uh, you know, history who rebel against God and who worship the idols of this particular world. And they're saying, how long? We suffered how long before you judge and you avenge our lives? The people on earth are crying out because of what they're experiencing, the suffering, the heartache, the judgments that have been poured out. And the, the souls on the altar are crying out. They're crying out for the will of God to be done. They're crying out for God's rule and reign to be ultimately executed. John continues on. There was a sixth seal. And I watched as he opened the sixth seal. And this seems to be a response to the answer of the souls crying out beneath the altar. What John sees is the cosmic judgment of God and of the Lamb on those who hate him and who oppose his church. He sees terrified people. It's interesting. When the first four seals were opened, judgment falls on a, a, a portion of the human race. But with this sixth seal, judgment falls upon every single enemy of God. There's the kings of the earth. Think of the kings, like presidents, the people at the ultimate power positions, the princes. Those are high, significant political ranking officials, the generals, the leaders of the military forces, the rich, those who have the resources and the influence to shape and control society, the mighty, those who are strong. And then there's every slave and every flea man from the very top to the lowest of every single strata of society. But there's seven categories which we've talked about as significance. Seven means the idea of fullness and completion. This is representative of all humanity. This great cosmic judgment that's being pulled out. He's speaking of the entire human race in its alienation and its rebellion against God. So what does he say about this fallen human race? It says they hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and on the wrath of the wrath of the lamb. It's interesting. They're, they're, they're calling out for creation to kill them. You know, it's kind of like a, a request for, um, you know, like euthanasia in a, in a very uh, profound and uh, dynamic kind of way. They're, these are screams of terror. Fall on us, hide us from the face of the lamb. They would rather die than face the holiness, the wrath, and the judgment of God. They fear God and what it means for them to be in his presence more than they fear death. They want to hide. They want to hide so badly that they say, fall on us, consume us, destroy us. God is coming in judgment. And so fallen humanity go into hiding. But this is not the first time 
See, the way this story ends is exactly the way this story begins. If you, remember, if you go back to Genesis, God takes chaos and he brings order. And he shapes and he divides and he creates this world, particularly this place we could call paradise, this garden, so that human beings can live and flourish in perfect communion with him. You remember how the story goes? You know, he creates and he divides and he shapes and he fashions. And then the kind of the crowning achievement of creation is the creation of Adam and Eve. And he creates Adam. He says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he creates Eve. And now he has this, uh, this partner in which he's living in community. But they're also living in community with God. God would come in the cool of the day and they would walk and they would live and they would experience this paradise in the presence of the living God. And God says, you can eat of anything. Except for this one particular tree. The, not, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From this particular tree, do not eat. So God was being very generous. It was a perfect scenario. And yet they choose, after being deceived by the serpent, to rebel against God. And their instinct, their natural instinct, as soon as they sin, is to recognize they're naked. And they feel ashamed. They're alienated from one another. And then they hide. Remember how the story goes. They go and they hide and God comes again calling in the cool of the day. And he says, you know, where are you? Where are you? And he's inviting them to come out. He knows where they're at. He's inviting them to come out and to confront the reality of what's happened and what's taking place. But sin always leads us to hide, to run from God. And God always is the one who pursues and invites us out of hiding. He asks these questions so that they can face up to the reality of what has taken place. And he says to him, who, who told you you were naked? Because Adam's response was, well, well, we heard you, and we were naked, and so we hid. And now we see it on a grand cosmic scale, fallen humanity trying to hide from the face of God. Some people think that we're getting better and better, that, that we're constantly evolving as a society. We're improving upon the things that we know and have experienced in the past. And that if given enough time, then you know, there really will be kind of this, this uh, utopian society that will one day be created. But what this shows us is that we do exactly the same thing at the end as we do at the very beginning of the story. And so God's judgment in this sixth seal is to create chaos... Where there had been order. It seems like, you know, the heavens and the earth are being destroyed. There's an earthquake and then there's the disappearance of what gives us light. The sun, the moon, the stars. And then there's followed of the uprooting of the mountains and the islands. And it ends with all of humanity trembling in terror. This is a reversal of what takes place in the creation in Genesis. God is undoing what he did in the beginning. What he put together is now being torn apart. This is what John is describing in this. And all of kind of the, 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 the things that are left over from this upheaval and uh, the, you know, the earthquake are going to be the building blocks for the new heaven and the earth. These are going to be the source of what God is going to do as he makes all things um, new. Before the final construction, though, of this new heaven and the earth, there are going to be increasing cycles of judgment. We're going to see not only the rest of uh, the seventh seal in this particular, but we're going to look at the seven trumpets, and we're going to look at the seven bowls of wrath that are going to be poured out. So this morning, just a real kind of question is, are you afraid of the Lamb? 
You know, we looked at last week the, the lamb who appeared as if he had been slain. And we talked about that he is at both times the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who has been slain. But oftentimes we think of Jesus as the lamb. We don't think of this mighty, strong, judgment-executing kind of lamb. But he is. I was talking with somebody yesterday and we, we were talking about the issue of how, how human pride just absolutely hates the fact that God is God and that we're not. That God can execute judgment because he's God. And so it causes something in us just to instinctually rebel against it. Oh, that's not fair. He shouldn't do that. But he's God. He is the lamb who was slain. He's the one who wields the authority of God the Father. He's the one that executes this judgment. And you and I, we have no right to stand in his presence and to say, why did you do this? He did it because he sovereignly declared that it was good and it would bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. Every single human life, every single human being that has been created from the beginning of time and that will come after us, will bring honor and glory to the Lamb. And we don't like this. And honestly, I don't like having to stand up here and say, this is the truth. But this is what Scripture clearly teaches. God will be glorified in His judgment. But He'll also be glorified in His grace and mercy. So for some people, they absolutely fear and they hate the Lamb. And what they say is they hide and they say, fall on us, destroy us, because we don't want to be in His presence. But for those of us who are in Christ, then the Lamb is this sweet and wonderful reality. The one who took our place and the judgment of God that was poured out on him should have been poured out on us. The judgments of God that are being poured out here will not be poured out on us. Because sin has been dealt with in the person, the life, the teaching, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So God is no longer punishing us for sin. God no longer is judging us because his judgment has fallen on Christ. So if you are in Christ this morning, no matter how bad the suffering gets, no matter how bad your situation and your circumstances are, it is not the judgment of God being poured out on you. It's just a simple reality of living in a broken, fallen world where death and destructions are realities because of the consequences and the power and the influence of sin. It ends Revelation chapter 6 with this question. Who can stand? And next week, Revelation chapter 7 answers that question. It answers that question and it says that the people who are trusting and looking to God, they're the ones who can stand. They're the ones who have the confidence of knowing that they're at peace with God. Just a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table and after we finish Taking communion together, we're going to sing our hymn of response. And it's probably one of my favorite hymns. It's called Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. And it's a confession of faith. But it's also a confession of the reality of who we are. Oh, Jesus, these are the things that I want to be. I, I, Jesus, I, my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. But in reality, that's not the way I live my life. Probably not the way you live your life. We're much more like that father who comes to Jesus with his son who's been, uh, you know, stricken with uh, convulsions. And he throws himself in the fire. And Jesus says, well, do you believe? And the father says, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, we're kind of, oh, yes, Jesus, I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I'm going to take up my cross, but only if it didn't cost me too much. 
You know, Jesus, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to risk everything, but, but, you know, as long as it means you're going to make everything comfortable and convenient and everything's going to be smooth sailing. I wish I could tell you that you're not going to suffer. I wish I could tell you that people in this room are not going to be diagnosed with cancer. Some of us are going to experience Alzheimer's, dementia. Some of us are going to get calls in the middle of the night that people we love are killed in car accidents. All kinds of things like that. I'm 42 years old. I still remember what it was like when my best friend snuck out of his house at night, went to a party, and was killed by a drunk driver. I still what it was like to go to his parents' house and to see the shock and the unbelief because they thought Nathan was still asleep in his bed. Those things happen. There's all kinds of suffering. The question is, will we suffer as good soldiers, believing and trusting in the gospel, that no suffering is meaningless. That God is present with his people even in the midst of all of this intense judgment that's being poured out. That's the way Revelation begins. Is Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of his people. In the midst of your suffering, Jesus will be present. But the question is, will we believe Jesus and take him at his word that losing our life for his sake is really where we're going to find him? Do we really believe the lamb who was slain, who offered his life as a sacrifice, is truly the source of all life on earth and in the age to come? Let's pray.